This podcast is a project of the USAID Asia Counter-Trafficking in Persons Project, brought to you by the U.S. Agency for International Development. We just arrived at the factory, a creative hub on the outskirts of Phnom Penh. Uh, my name's Matt Blomberg. I'm a correspondent with the Thomson Reuters Foundation in Cambodia, and I'm here with my interpreter, Connor Wall, to meet a young Cambodian artist named Chan Poen. Let's go have a look inside. Inside, there are works by several artists, sculptures, paintings, and photography. But in the middle of the room, there's a striking sculpture called Let Me Out. It's a formation of bricks with five artificial limbs painted gold and wrapped in a chain. There are eyes on the bricks and red paint like blood. So this piece of artwork, I included many different ideas. So there's three different aspects. One relates to disability. The second relates to my own personal work history, working in brickyards. And the third is the social stigma that disabled people face every day. I included eyes on the bricks and also blood dripping down the whole piece. This represents the blood, sweat and tears that labourers have to, to give to these factories and these factory owners. So they have to give uh, everything they have, all their energy. It's like they exchange their life for money. So they give their life in exchange for money. I'm Tarek Moltnabeth, a Bangkok-based journalist and producer, and this is Labor of Loss, a series that puts human trafficking and labor exploitation in Asia under the microscope, from the notorious fishing industry in the open waters of Southeast Asia to the sprawling palm oil plantations in Malaysia. Millions of people are estimated to be trafficked in Asia each year. Caught up in complex webs of supply chains that reach across the globe and keep millions of others fed, clothed, and housed. Exploitation is deeply entrenched, but is change possible? And what does it look like? In this episode, the brick industry in Cambodia, via a tour of three works by this remarkable artist who used to work in a brick factory until he couldn't anymore. Hello, my name is Chan Poon. I am an artist from Kampot. Huan is wearing jeans and a black t-shirt and he's got wavy, bouncy hair. My parents used to work in a brick kiln, um, but the owner didn't pay the, f- the full agreed salaries. So my family were very, very poor and they decided to move to Kampun Chnang province. And they started working in another brick kiln there. Initially, when I moved to Kampung Chang with my family, I would stay at home and look after my little brother. So at this stage, I'd already stopped going to school. Then my mother became pregnant again, and she was unable to work. So I replaced her in the, the brick kiln factory. So my mother stayed at home, and I started working age 13. How hard was the work? Uh, so the, the usual day would entail beginning work at 7am and working all the way through until 11.30 and then there'll be an hour lunch break. After we had lunch we would start work again at 12.30 and work all the way to 6 in the evening. The most difficult part of the work was the heat. So these brickyards you're unable to 
to mould and dry the bricks in the rain. So on, on a rainy day, you can't work. So on the hot days, you have to work really, really hard to get all the work done. And if you're working in that heat all day long, people will get various illnesses. Uh, they've started feeling they might get dizzy or have headaches, or some of them would just be exhausted. Also, some of the, the workers in the factory got dengue fever uh, because they slept outside with no mosquito nets. Juan says his family was paid a piece rate per brick. Usually, they work through the holidays and the religious festivals to earn more money. What coping mechanisms did you have in order to help you get up and go to work every day? Oh. <laughs> to motivate ourselves to get up for work was difficult. And there was no one else that could motivate us, only ourselves. So the motivation we used to use was... First, we had to pay off our debt. After we paid off our debt, the hope was that we could save money. And after we saved money, the hope was that we could buy land and buy a house. In the last few years, there have been two big studies of the brick industry in Cambodia. One was just released, and it found that the workers in the industry are internal migrants from provinces across Cambodia, as well as some people from Vietnam. Uh, so my name is Taro. I'm the uh, consultant for Building and Woodworkers Trade Union Federation of Cambodia. That's Taro Kun. He worked on that report, and so did Laurie Parsons. Yeah, hi. Um, so I'm uh, Laurie Parsons, and I'm a lecturer in human geography at Royal Holloway, University of London. Laurie also worked on another major research project called Blood Bricks, but we'll come back to that one later. So most recently, they surveyed the industry in 2019 and found that there are over 450 kilns. They're mainly located on the country's major waterways, especially the Mekong and the Tonle Sap, north of Phnom Penh. There's good clay there, and it's only a short truck drive to the city. So we found that, you know, the data that we found is that more than 10,000 of our people are living in, in, in the brick compounds. Almost uh, 50% are, are female workers. Uh, they're still, you know, are children uh, underage uh, are working in that. Half of the kilns use manual brick molding machines, which are dangerous for workers. Uh, some small kilns uh, operate still, you know, like a very manual, you know, like you're still using hand. Uh, you, you can just feel like, you know, they're very risky uh, situation. The issue of brickings factories uh, is the same elsewhere, you know, in Bangladesh and India. You know, they are considered a very informal industry. The same common issue that they are facing, a struggle that they are facing, it's a debt bondage. Those workers and families, young kids are living in the conditions of generation to generation and they would not be able to get out of the situation of that bondage. They are living in a risky hazardous uh, working conditions, living uh, in uh, environments that there's no social protections, there's no health and safety. You know, I, I used to be a construction worker myself, I used to be a garment worker. Uh, from my experience working as a worker, you can imagine how much struggle that you are facing, how, uh, you know, you want to make sure that your, your family situations improve, you want to, you know, to get a decent wages, you want a better working condition, you want social protections uh, to ensure that you are, you know, working in the safety environments. Construction is booming in Cambodia, 
And that means there's been a huge increase in demand for bricks. Well, um, Cambodia has been in many ways a kind of success story of, uh, of recent Asian development. It's been a country which has grown extremely fast in GDP terms. Uh, actually, it was between the, uh, in the first decade of the 21st century, from 2000 to 2010, it was the sixth fastest growing country in the world. So Cambodia is absolutely undergoing a massive boom in construction, which manifests primarily in two urban areas, predominantly Phnom Penh, the capital, and also in Chinookville, down uh, the coastal city, uh, down in the south of Cambodia. And these two areas have seen huge foreign investment, and also domestic investment, which has fueled a massive increase in demand for bricks. So we've seen uh, what is an old industry, and which has always been quite an exploitative industry, suddenly become kind of uh, co-opted into this global system of, of capital investment and construction. In the last two decades, the Phnom Penh skyline has transformed. Can you describe these big buildings that these bricks go into? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Some of the ones we were able to trace uh, directly to those kilns were uh, extremely high-end um, high investments and high-end buildings, such as one in particular was called Peak, which was you know, a, very much a skyscraper with luxury pools on top, uh, designed in a very striking manner. And one of the interesting things about the Peak is that it's actually uh, one of the few buildings in which we were able to directly trace foreign investment in some of the units there. So we have very big brands such as the Shangri-La Hotel being involved in, the, in that building and also uh, very large-scale uh, investment funds. So one of the interesting things that came out of this project is the extent to which we were able to directly connect these kind of labor practices to global systems of trade and global systems of investment. All right, so we're just going to have another look now at another piece of Pawn's work from a different collection, actually, but focusing on the same stuff, and it's, a, it's ink on paper. On our tour of the gallery, this is the second artwork. A really kind of intricate, large piece that shows a scene from inside the brick factory. Um, and we can see, you know, three or four people huddled around this fairly heavy machinery where they feed uh, dirt into one end and uh, bricks come out the other end. So this drawing of mine describes or shows my accident where I lost my arm in the, in the brickyard in the factory. So this shows the different stages of the brick making. The first stage is the, the earth or the clay is moistened and put into a compressor machine which rolls, rolls the earth into smaller pieces. These pieces are then fed into a mold where the, the, the bricks are molded and then this continues on the conveyor belt and these pieces are cut into individual bricks and then these bricks are taken outside and dried. So in this, this artwork, you can see my right hand is after getting trapped in the compressor machine, which rolls the earth originally. And this is how I lost my arm. Wow. So this is, this is actually you. you. You've drawn yourself here in this. Yeah. Do you remember the accident happening? Uh, the day of that accident was the last day I ever worked in Brickyard. And I was about 14 years old. So I remember clearly on this day, my family didn't want to work. They were feeling lazy. They wanted to play cards and drink beer. But because my family was in debt to the owner of the, the brickyard, I kind of I've suggested that my family, I pushed my family 
to go to work on this day. And in the end, they agreed, so we, we worked on that day. But if it wasn't for me, if it was up to my family, we wouldn't have worked on that day, and I wouldn't have had this accident. Your, your family was in debt to the, the owner of the brick kiln. How did they get in debt to the owner? But uh, So initially, when my family moved province, uh, we had no money. So when we got work in the, the brickyard, we had no money for food, so the owner of the brickyard loaned us money so we could buy food and rice and the deal was that we would work in return and then pay pay back the debt. So at that time we didn't have to worry about accommodation because we were allowed to stay inside in the brick factory just uh, build a small uh, cabin or put up a mosquito net and we were allowed to stay there for free. So did it feel like the, the owner of the brick factory had, had done your family a favour, a good deed? My family and I both felt that the factory owner was helping us because we had now had a place to stay and we had a job and we had an income. So at that time we all felt that we were being helped. Laurie Parsons has been doing research in Cambodia since 2008. Well, I work in geography, human geography specifically, and uh, my work in general is looking at the intersection of migration and labour and climate change. And I've been through since that time all of the various industries that have a number of migrants in Cambodia. In a nutshell, what I look at is the way in which climate change manifests in labour practices and systems of economy and production. The brick industry is a key example of the complex ways climate change has an impact on everyday life. It was one of the focuses of the Blood Bricks report by Laurie and his colleagues. Cambodia in recent years has been extremely vulnerable to climate change. It's a country which depends to a large extent on smallholder agriculture and in particular on rice farming. Generally, the presence of irrigation is is limited, certainly in the dry season. So people depend on the reliability of rainfall. And although the amount, the total amount of water coming into Cambodia from rainfall hasn't changed a huge amount over the last Uh, 20 years, for example, the regularity of that rain has changed a lot, and that's a massive problem for farmers. Essentially, it tends to come in huge lumps uh, and in a regular pattern, whereas previously, the Cambodian rain pattern was very much predictable. So in order to compensate for that, what farmers have done is invested in um, new technologies, for example, fertilizer and and investing in mechanization as well. And all of this costs money. To cover those costs, people borrow money. So now if your crop fails, not only do you not have the rice you need, but you also have debt repayments due every month. So how do you deal with that? Most people just take on more debt and you get on uh, this kind of vicious cycle, this spiraling situation where people take on debt to cover debt. Per capita, the Cambodian microfinance industry is one of the biggest and most profitable in the world. That's the situation, the point at which people often end up in the brick industry. They see it as the honourable thing to do, the only way out. It's a a situation whereby people think, right, I know the brick industry is terrible and people are aware how bad it is, but at least then I can consolidate my debts. I'll sell all of my debt to the brick kiln owner. He will pay off my debts and I'll just work for him until I can pay him back. This kind of scenario unfolds in many places around the world. Debt bondage is a very common practice in the brick industry 
globally. Uh, and, and, you know, you're talking absolutely vast numbers which dwarf what we're seeing in Cambodia in, in South Asia. You have this area called the Brick Belt, which is Nepal, Bangladesh, India, and even parts of northern Afghanistan, where there's you know, a huge amount of brick production because the soil's good for it. Uh, many people are debt bonded there, if not most. Tends to be seasonal, but it isn't always. I mean, you know, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people. One difference between the brick factories in Cambodia and in South Asia is that in Cambodia, they work all year round instead of just when the weather is dry and the bricks can dry quickly in the sun. In periods when it's cloudy or it's raining, you just have to cover them and they're not drying. So brick production is much slower. And since workers produce bricks on a piece rate, that means that they get paid far less. And that's actually a key part of the dynamic of brickwork is this key problem which is that although they may be able to make a meager living in the dry season, it's that rainy season when they're still debt bonded and they still have to stay and they're losing money and just borrowing more and more money from the kiln owner that really kind of deepens their situation and really um, ends up with them being often unable to leave for uh, many years. I mean, it's a number of years that most people spend in the brick industry. We've come across people having multi-generational periods in the, in the brick industry. The longest period we came across in our survey of the whole industry was something like 50 years. Wow. And we've come across some stories of people um, entering the brick industry at a young age, for example, um, uh, 16, and then going through 20, 30 years and then ultimately passing on the debt to their children, who is then, you know, a teenager. So in terms of debt bondage being a recruitment process, how did that come about and why does it happen this way? Well, I mean, debt bondage in many ways is as old as, as brick production. It's something that goes back, has a very long history, not just in Cambodia, but uh, in other areas. And it, it isn't only confined to the brick industry. From a rational perspective, the situation in Cambodia is not one which really benefits anybody. Because at the moment, you end up with uh, people who come into the brick industry carrying with them so much debt that actually, in order to bond somebody into the brick industry, the brick kiln owners having to make that as their primary investment. That costs more, really, often than setting up the physical infrastructure of the kiln itself. It can often be, as, as Brick Kiln owners say, like 100,000 to, uh, to bond uh, a reasonable workforce. So at the moment, in the conditions as they are, it's not really even benefiting the Brick Kiln owners. Do you have any reflections on the role of kiln owners? Yes, well, I think what's important to understand uh, about kiln owners is that they sit within a wider context. People fixate on the on the brick kiln owner as a purveyor of evil in themselves. And many brick kiln owners are really not good people. You can see that they're quite well aware that they're exploiting their workers. But I think it's important to understand that brick kiln owners sit within a system in which this kind of work and this kind of arrangement is legitimated. They sit within a global system in which this kind of uh, this kind of exploitation is positively encouraged, and um, you know they are legitimate figures in their community, and they're not seen as pariahs for doing this. Um, I think one of the things that is really key to understand is that they operate within a global system, and that this isn't just something which is an aberration occurring in small local areas of uh, of Cambodia, of rural Cambodia, but uh, it's very much something which is linked into all those systems of foreign investment. And trade. One of the reasons that Cambodia has experienced this um, massive construction boom and investment boom in recent years is because of the uh, ability to get very cheap materials like this. It's priced into that investment. Um, the international community and especially wealthier countries which invest 
in places like Cambodia have a responsibility really to understand how they also are driving these situations. Uh, and more broadly, this really needs to be linked into debates over climate change in order to understand how, you know, when climate change hits, whether it's a fast onset or a slow onset disaster, it isn't necessarily people simply fleeing in a kind of unconstrained herd of people as is often presented in the politics of many countries. But actually what happens is they get absorbed into systems of labour and systems of the global economy, which ultimately benefit from these uh, the very low wages and exploitative conditions that they will expect as a result of those situations. Can you talk about the recommendations you made uh, to improve this industry? Yes, well, I think um, in the first instance, the key thing that we see as important is to raise the wages that uh, brick kiln workers get. And I think if we could just get some kind of agreement on a minimum wage for brick workers and a certain minimum standard of conditions, then all of this need for the bondage, which is really the worst, by far the worst element of the industry, might begin over time to disappear. Because that is really um, at the core of it. People would come to this industry, they wouldn't need to be bonded if it wasn't so low paid and if it wasn't so bad. There's nothing inherently terrible about making bricks. Taro said the union is focused on organizing and educating workers in brick factories. We are now trying to work in the uh, to empower workers. The initial step that we are undertaking, one is that workers have to be well aware about their rights and their basic rights. I think that is very important. If they are recognized about their rights, they are educated so they know who is responsible, who is accountable. So I think uh, uh, BWTUC, the Building and Woodworker Trade Union Federation, have undertaken a numbers of bricking sites. We are able to organize more than 25 brick sites at the moment. So we hope that more workers joining the union, more the workers organize across the country, across the provinces. It doesn't have to be like this. Simply by paying attention to the conditions in which those bricks are made, if you either do that by wage standards or by safety standards, preferably, of course, both at the same time, then there's a genuine hope that the country could transition away from this very exploitative model. Uh, now we're looking at another one of Horton's pieces and it's a, another ink drawing and it shows him in a hospital bed. This one is the third and final artwork on our tour. And uh, this six-armed goddess kind of standing over the bed with a giant hole through her stomach. And then across, across the room from the hospital bed, the floor kind of opens and there's, there's dozens and dozens of what appear to be uh, souls uh, reaching up through, through the hospital floor. Uh, so Khmer culture uh, is a strong Buddhist culture, so they believe in religion and also superstitions. And Khmerians in general believe that Buddhism helps them and it takes care of them every day. And I know that Buddhism and Hindu both originate in India and I have a deep love for both and I try to introduce sometimes these aspects of religion and Buddhism into my artwork uh, as a fusion of traditional culture and also mixing it with a modern culture, my own ideas. Religion is a, 
is a way that, that people can cope with things. In the factory, did you notice that people used religion as a way to get themselves to do this hard work every day? From my own personal experience, uh, all the families who worked in the, the brickyards uh, had a strong religious belief and they would all pray every day. Not just the Khmer families, but I've also witnessed Vietnamese families who also prayed every day and they respected their religion. And all of them, all families, Khmer and Vietnamese, would all have considered that this life is very, very difficult for them because bad karma is following them from a previous life into this life. And that's the reason they've ended up in these brickyards. When I had my accident and I lost my arm, I thought about this, but I don't believe it. I just think I was just too careless that day in the factory, and that is why I lost my arm. When I was in my hospital bed sleeping one night in the hospital, I had a dream that a woman with six arms came to visit me. She had a hole in her stomach, and she told me that I had borrowed her arm, and now was the time for her to take my arm back. Uh, and then she asked me to follow her, to come with her. And in this dream I said, wait, I must ask my mother if I can go or not. If she lets me go, I will go. If she says no, I'm going to stay. And to this day I believe if I had replied that I would go with her, she would have taken me and I would have died. So this is a Buddhist belief. And I said I wouldn't go and now I'm, I'm still here. I'm Tarika Montanavith, and this is Labor of Loss. I'm recording this from my home studio, wondering, who made the bricks in this building? Were they poorly paid or held hostage to debts? Or did they have to work in harsh and dangerous working conditions, made worse by climate change? But you know, I'm beginning to realize it's not just bricks. The building blocks of so much of our lives rely on workers trapped in situations just like these. If you want to see Puan's work, you can find him on Instagram at Chan underscore Puan. That's P-H-O-U-N. Next episode, we head to Malaysia and meet a family that spent generations laboring in rubber and palm oil plantations. It's no secret that palm oil is a destructive and exploitative industry, but what's the best way to change it? With a carrot or with a stick? Labor of Loss is a production of Windrock International as part of its USAID-Asia CTIP program. It is hosted by me, Tara Kamontanavith, and produced by Nicole Kirby and Michael Green. Additional reporting for this episode by Matt Blomberg and interpreting by Connor Wall. Sound design and mixing by John Chia. Additional production by Inigo Mantagon at Noise Studio in Bangkok. Thank you to executive producer Jeannie Crump and Sarah Piazzano and Natasha Burley and to Julia from Liberty Shared. This podcast was made possible through the generous support of USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development. The opinions are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of USAID or Windrock International. Windrock International.